Okay, this morning we're starting in Nehemiah chapter 7 and verse 5. So let's, let's open in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this history from your people and how you watched over them and how you protected them and took care of them and your faithfulness uh, to them. And just uh, we thank you for that illustration and just the reinforcement uh, in our hearts that you do take care of those who are yours and the encouragement that it is to us. Um, Lord, we pray that you'll be with us now and help us to focus and concentrate. Lord, we know that uh, celebrating Easter with a a big breakfast sometimes makes it a little hard to stay awake uh, a little later in the day, but uh, we just pray that you'll help us to do that. And uh, bless our time now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we uh, last week we were we kind of finished up chapter six, and Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. So Jerusalem was destroyed in about 600 BC by Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews were deported. Seventy years later, they came back, and God used Cyrus to send them back for a decree to go back and rebuild the temple. And they did that in about 20 years. They started, stopped. Um, God sent um, Haggai and Zechariah as prophets to spur them on. They finished that after about 20 years. And there's just kind of a long blank where the, the city has been destroyed. There has no walls, but they've got the temple. And so that goes on like that for about 80, 90 years. And then Ezra appears on the scene, and he's, he's a teacher, so he teaches the Jews. But um, in 444 B.C., uh, King Artaxerxes uh, is, is the king of Persia, and God moves Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the walls of the city. So he gets permission from Artaxerxes to go back. He, he gets them to put the walls together. We've been reading about the opposition of the surrounding nations because they don't want a, a big fortified city in their midst. Um, they don't really like the Jews, and they just soon have them you know, uh, living out in the open. So Nehemiah has finished that. We saw that uh, in verse uh, 15, it says the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elu in 52 days. They built two and a half miles of wall, 52 days. And the surrounding countries realized this was an act of God. These people couldn't have done it on their own. And it talks about how discouraged they were. Um, and so we, we saw that here in the end of chapter 6. And then we had a couple of verses that talked about Here's some of the leading citizens of Jerusalem and some of the priests and how they're intermarried with the leaders of the opposition in the surrounding countries. So Nehemiah has this group of people you know, within Jerusalem who are opposing him and helping their enemies out. And so it just adds to all the trouble that he's facing. And we saw that. So beginning in chapter 7... Um, you know, the walls rebuilt, got the doors hung, and, and now they've got a new situation. The Jews have never had to have gate guards before. They never had gates. So we have Hananiah, 
who had been char- in charge of the guards around the temple, he now has expanded duties to take care of the city gates. Um, and Nehemiah uh, puts his brother Hanani in charge of the city as kind of like mayor. So he's setting up a government. You've now got a city that can exist as its own entity. And so they've got that established. And then he set up a protocol for when to open the gates up, you know, open them up, not, not early morning, but later in the day, and make sure the guard's there all day long, and then close them and lock them before the guard leaves for the night. So he's still worried about the security of the city and the people. And then he sets up, uh, he says, we, we need to... Um, conscript a few of the city dwellers to help with the guard because you know that they need more guards now, and he also set up something like a neighborhood watch to make sure that they could guard themselves from their enemies. And so that brings us. Uh, we got through verse four last time. And verse four uh, says, "Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built." So the city had been pretty well destroyed. I mean, it, would, it was like a battleground. It's like the pictures we get out of the Ukraine. You know, that city had not been rebuilt. A few people lived in the city. Most of them who had come back lived in the villages outside near where they had the land and the land that they worked. There was no point in living in Jerusalem because it was not fortified. It was not a safer place than the villages. So they lived in the villages. It was closer to their work. So this morning, we're going to start here in verse 5, in chapter 7. So we've got this big city, not very many people. And so Nehemiah is going to start thinking about how, how do we deal with that. We need a bustling city. We want the city to be healthy. So he says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. These are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. So now the emphasis is on Jerusalem and getting it repopulated. Um, You know, we, we see... Here in verse 4, the city is large, you know, not very many people. Let's turn ahead to chapter 11. Someone like to read verse 1 for us. Now the leaders and the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. And the holy city, while nine-tenths remained out in other cities. Okay, so now here, chapter 11, verse 1, we see what he's going to do about this empty city. What are we, three chapters later? So we've got another, as you go through Ezra and Nehemiah, sometimes they'll interrupt the action and put in a whole section about something else and then get back to the story again. So that's what we're going to see here. We're going to have kind of a three full three-chapter interruption in this story. But they're going to draw lots. So if you're going to draw lots, so one out of ten come, you need a list of names, right? If you don't know who's here, you can't draw lots. You've got to find out who's all here, who who qualifies. 
Yeah, this, it's like I just finished two weeks of jury duty. Didn't have, <laughs> I showed up Monday morning and got sent home. That's, that was it. But, um, you know, they have a list of people they draw from. So Nehemiah has to have a list of people. And we see that here in verse 5. He says, God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and enroll the people by genealogies. You know, this, this is God's priority to have people. You know, they weren't just going to go out and bring anybody in. They had to be people who are God's chosen people. This is God's chosen city. He wanted it populated with his chosen people. Um, and we've seen a couple places already where the nations are excluded from what they're doing. Let's go back to Ezra chapter 4. We had mentioned before that Nehemiah was kind of a separatist. Well, that's because that's what God commanded the Jews, to come out and be separate from the nations. But looking at chapter 4, would someone like to read verses 1 through 3 for us? Okay, so the surrounding nations. Now, these are the Samaritans. Remember, they were people who Assyria had brought into this region. Um, they were being attacked by lions and stuff. And they said, well, it's because the God of that area, they don't know how to worship him. So they, you know, the Assyria brought in some Levites to teach them about the Jewish laws. So these were really non-Jews who were practicing a sort of Jewish religion but they weren't really Jews. And that's, you know, even in New Testament times, you've got the Samaritans, you know, and the Jews really looked down on them. So that's who these people were. And, and at this time, you know, um, Zerubbabel and Jeshua were the two leaders who brought the people back after the <clears throat> captivity, and they're building the temple. And these nations say, you know, we've, we've worshipped on that mountain, but let us help you. And they said, no, you have no part we're separate from you. You cannot be involved with us on this. You have no part in this temple. So then let's go ahead to Nehemiah chapter 2. If someone would like to read verse 20. Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosperous, and we as servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem. Okay, so he's starting to build the wall, and again, they want to be part of it. And then, and this time it's uh, Nehemiah. He says, you have no part. You have no portion in Jerusalem. So this is God's city, God's temple, and God's people. And if your name's not on the list, tough luck. You're not involved. Now, to me, I thought, this seems like it might be a type of something. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and, and someone like to read verse 27 for us. 
nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. So this is the new Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem. If your name's not on the list, tough luck. You don't get to come in. So that's the same thing we have going on here back in Nehemiah. They're making a list of those who are going to be allowed to live in this, the rebuilt Jerusalem. So Nehemiah pulls the leaders of the people together. They start working on this list to see who qualifies to live in Jerusalem. And lo and behold, they find a list that Zerubbabel and Joshua had assembled 90 years earlier. And this is the list back in Ezra chapter 2. So let's go back to Ezra chapter 2. And someone like to read verse 1. Now, these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away to Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his city. Okay. If that sounds familiar, which it should, it's because it is identical to our verse 6 in chapter 7. So from then on, it's, this is basically a copy of Ezra chapter 2. So this is a list of those people who returned uh, about 90 years earlier at the end of the 70-year um, captivity. Cyrus was king of Persia. He wrote the decree that all the Jews could go back to Jerusalem and build a temple so that they could offer offerings to their God on his behalf. His philosophy was, if everybody in the whole empire is praying for me, that's good. So he supported all the local religions. He sent the Jews back, build your temple. Here's a whole bunch of money to buy sacrifices. Pray for me, sacrifice for me. I don't want any of the gods mad at me. So under, under those, uh, that disillusionment, I guess, um, the Jews, God arranged to have the Jews return and build the temple. Keep your gods happy, your lands peaceful. Yes. But God can use even bad theology. <laughs> right. right. So anyways, uh, we spent some time looking at this list months ago, and we were going through Ezra chapter 2 back when we started that. Uh, so we'll just gloss over it. Because um, it's a ton of names here. Verse 7, I think, is just some of the leaders. And then you see at the end of verse 7, it says, The number of men of the people of Israel. And it lists people by family unit and by cities. So it gives the name of a family, so many men. Or the name of a city, so many men. And that goes through verse 38. Then looking at verse 39. It says, the priests, the sons of Jedidiah of the house of Jeshua. So now we've got the priests listed by family and by name. And that goes through verse 42. Then in 43, we have the Levites. So they're listed by family group and by number. 
and includes the singers and the gatekeepers in verses 44 and 45, who were all Levites with specific duties. And then in verse 46, we have the temple servants. So these are all, as we'd looked before, these were people who had been captured uh, in the past and they had been given to the Levites to do the menial work to, to uphold the temple. They carried water. They, they went out and chopped down the trees and brought in wood for all the offering fires. You know, they did the, a lot of the physical labor. Um, was it the... It was the story of the Gibeonites who had the... You know, they, they came with all the old bread and the old clothes and said, we've come from so many miles away, make a treaty with us. You know, they just came over the hill from the next valley. You know, and they lied to Joshua and, and Joshua made a treaty. They got put to work. So there's some of them were the descendants of the Gibeonites as well as others. Uh, going down to verse 57, we have the sons of Solomon's servants. <coughs> so these are some of the same kind of people. When Solomon expanded the kingdom, he conquered other nations. And many of them were captured as slaves and put to work in the temple. And then we have an interesting section in verses 61 through 63. Um, let me read some of this. And they were those who came up from Tel Mela, Tel Harsha, Cherub, Anam, and Immer. They could not show their father's houses or their descendants, whether they were of Israel. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nekadah, 642, and of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, sons of Hakaz, and uh, sons of Barzali, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzali, the Gileadite, and was named after them. So they could not bring uh, a copy of their genealogy or their records that showed that they were Israelites. So... You know, some of the common people, some of the priests even, they couldn't prove that, you know, who they were in that case. <clears throat> so, what about the priests? It talks about them in 64 and 65. These searched among their ancestral reg registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood. They were not allowed in the temple. It would have um, defiled the temple if they were not legitimate priests. And they did not have the paperwork to show that. And the governor said to them that they should not eat from the most holy things until a priest arose with a Urim and Thummim. And that was a priest who could go to God and say, okay, God, here's so-and-so. Here's Is he a child of Israel? Is he a legitimate priest? And then God would tell them whether he was qualified or not. And so they were kept out of the temple until they were... They could be checked. But we do have some people here who um, come. They don't have the records. They claim to be Jews, but they may or may not be. One name in, one name in particular here is it talked about the sons of Tobiah. So here we are. So this was back at the originally at the time of Ezra when they or before Ezra, when 
uh, they first came back to the land, Tobiah couldn't prove that he was a Jew or not. So 90 years later, when Nehemiah is trying to build a wall, one of the chief opponents is a guy named Tobiah. So, you know, there's some speculation that he's a descendant of this guy who was basically excluded because uh, uh, he was not, didn't have the right paperwork to prove uh, that he was a Jew. He may have been carrying a grudge. <laughs> so, that goes through these whole lists. The total number of people we've got in verse 66, 42,360 came back. Um, besides, they'll say in addition to that, there's female servants and male servants. There's over 7,000 and a couple, several hundred singers. So that was the size of the group that came back originally to rebuild the temple. And then it lists their horses and their camels and how many donkeys they had. You know, they, they like to list a number of things. Uh, then some about, you know, here's how many tons of gold and silver they brought back to pay for the temple and to buy offerings and, and things. But all this we covered months ago back in Ezra too. So we've got the, we've got the list recorded twice here. Um, then to kind of sum it up, looking at verse 73, the last <clears throat> verse, it says, Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their cities. It didn't say they all lived in Jerusalem. They lived in their cities. They all had different cities that they lived in. Um, I had been rereading um, uh, going through the Kings and Chronicles and I think that it was a Nebuchadnezzar's third visit to Jerusalem is when he destroyed the city and, and took the captives. And I think they only took like two or 3,000 people back to Babylon at that time. That was all that was left. So there were not very many people left in Jerusalem at that time. So, and finally, verse 73 ends with, and when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So we have something like that in, back in Ezra 2, but here it actually fits with a continuing commentary with, verse, with chapter 8. So it's kind of like a segue verse here. So going into chapter 8, um, I'll read that section of 73 again and then verse 1 of chapter 8. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities, and all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So what we're doing right now is we're starting a whole section that is going to deal um, with a spiritual revival under Ezra. Forget about repopulating Jerusalem for a while. We've got three chapters to cover. We'll get back to it in chapter 11. So they've got the list of names. They're going to draw lots. We interrupt this to talk about something else. So as we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've, there's famously, a, remember Ezra chapter 4? There's a whole section in there that belongs about 70 years later. 
And if you don't know that, it gets really confusing. So chapter 8 here, there's, and there's debate about when this occurs. I th- you know, it indicates, I think it's continuous. It happens you know, right after the walls are built. But some people want to put it before Nehemiah even. Going back to when Ezra first arrived, he, he got there 13 years before Nehemiah. So, um, Nehemiah here in this section is mentioned twice. So you can see that he's not the main character. In chapter 8, we have in verse 9, it says, it says Nehemiah, who is the governor, and Ezra, the priest. So he's just, he's there, he's mentioned. Um, he will be mentioned again in chapter 10, verse 1, where they sign a covenant. Now the sealed documents were the names of Nehemiah the governor. Okay, so we have three whole chapters where Nehemiah is almost ignored in the book of Nehemiah. This is all about Israel. So, verse 73 says it was in the seventh month. If we go in chapter 8, Looking at the end of verse 2, which we haven't got to quite there yet, it says, on the first day of the seventh month. Okay, so we're on the first day of the seventh month. The last historical event we had before this was when they finished the wall. Let's go back to chapter 6, verse 15. So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month of Elul which is very difficult to say, in 52 days. Elul is the sixth month. So going from the 25th day of the sixth month to the first day of the seventh month, with uh, 30-day months that they had, we're looking at about a week. So they finished the wall, and so this gathering is like a week later. That's if you put it in the same year. It's but that's not definite. This could have been at a different time. It could have been a couple of years later, but if it's possible it was it followed immediately after completing the wall. So all the people gathered together at the square near the water gate. If you remember, all the details, remember in chapter 3, we had the details of all the people who built what section of wall, and we went around the city. I'm sure you all remember that. Anyway, so <laughs> the water gate is on the east wall of Jerusalem, about a third away up from the southern tip. It overlooks the Kidron Valley, and that's where the that's Gishon Spring is. So there's a big spring there, and that's why they call it the water gate, because that's the gate they use to go down into the Kidron Valley and get water. And so there's, there's a square there in, the, in front of the gate, and so all the people are gathering here, and it's the first day of the seventh month. Why would there be a gathering on this particular day? What's significant about it? The day of trumpets. I was going to say, it's got to be a feast. It's, I just didn't know which one. <laughs> yes, we have, you know, we're, we're celebrating Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread is in the first month of the year of the religious calendar. 
So there's um, the first month we've got Passover and unleavened bread, and then 50 days later is Pentecost, and then nothing until the seventh month. And we'll have basically we're going to look at three different events that happen here in the seventh month. But the first day is this is actually the civil calendar starts on this day. I don't know why they had a civil calendar that was half a year offset from the religious calendar, but that's what they had. It's also called Rosh Hashanah. You may have heard that, Rosh Hashanah. So this is the first day of the year, a day of, they blow the trumpets, no one's supposed to do any work, but they celebrate. This is New Year's Day. You know, what do we do on New Year's Day? We get the day off, right? We sit around and watch football, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, they blew trumpets and celebrated. Um, Rosh Hashanah. Let's, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 23. This chapter um, describes all these uh, different feasts. Leviticus chapter 23. Someone like me, verses 24 and 25. of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first of the month, you shall have a rest, a reminder by blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. 25-2. Yes, please. You shall not do any laborious work, but you shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. Okay, so there's the Feast of Trumpets. It's the first day of the civil year. Um, they had a lunar calendar and basically the first day of the month was when you could not see the moon. <laughs> That's a new moon. So in the middle of the day at high noon, the moon is right there next to the sun. You can't see it, but that's the first day of the month. And we've talked about, you may have heard about new moon festivals. I think we even, in, yeah, we've, we have that in um, uh, Colossians. They celebrated new moon festivals. Well, every, every new moon, every first of the month was like a, they celebrated it, a new month. Well, this was the most important of all the new moon festivals. Um, the other important days was the 15th of the month. So instead of the moon being directly overhead at high noon, the moon now is directly overhead at midnight. You've got a full moon. So I don't know if any of you noticed the full moon last night. Yeah. It's the 15th of the month. Our, this month happened to line up perfectly with a lunar month. The 15th of the month, we have a full moon. Um, Christ, the, the night in, when they were in Gethsemane, it was under a full moon that night. So that's why they could see and move around. Um, so was the Feast of Trumpets one of the Three festivals when all the men were supposed to show up in Jerusalem. No. So it's not one of the big festivals. But it was a day to celebrate. So let's look at the next one. We've got two other religious functions in the seventh month. So if you're still in Leviticus chapter 23... Okay, we haven't read around yet, but we'll read this for the next one. The Day of Atonement. Um, we'll read verses 26 through 32. So, Marie, would you like to start for us? 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly, and deny yourselves, and present a food offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on this same day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement on your behalf before the Lord your God. If any person does not practice self-denial on this particular day, he is to be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person, I will destroy them among his people. It should be a Sabbath complete rest to you, and you shall humble your souls on the ninth of the month at evening, from evening until evening, until you shall keep your Sabbath. Okay. So this was a special day, the Day of Atonement. Again, this was not one of the three feasts where all the men were supposed to report to Jerusalem. So we got two, two events already in the seventh month, but we don't have the, the people assembling for it. Uh, according to Hebrews 9.7, this is the one time a year that the high priest would go into the holiest of holies with blood to sprinkle before uh, the presence of God. So this represents really Christ presenting himself, his blood, on our behalf, the Day of Atonement. So this was a very significant day, but it was not a gathering or really a feast day. So going on, what's the third day? Well, let's, we can continue on. Uh, Leviticus 23. Would someone like to just read verses 33 through 36? spoke to Moses saying speak to the people of Israel saying uh, okay, saying, on okay. the 15th, 15th day of this seventh month and for seven days is the feast of booths to the Lord on the first day shall be a holy convocation you shall not do any ordinary work for seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord on the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord it is a solemn assembly you shall not do any ordinary work Okay, so now we've got a, it's an eight-day feast. And this is one of the three where all the people are to come to Jerusalem. Come and have a feast. Um, and again, it's on the 15th of the month, full moon. This celebrates the exodus. You know, they lived in booths when they left uh, Egypt. So they have to get branches. It's also called Feast of Tabernacles, tents. So they make themselves little tents. And we will see later here in, in uh, Nehemiah that, that this is, will be significant. So this is the day for all the people to gather uh, together in Jerusalem. But going back to uh, Nehemiah chapter eight verse one, the people are gathering, but you know it's not for one of these the two for the Day of Atonement. It's not for the Feast of Booths. It's for New Year's. This is celebration. But you see, what do they ask? For they ask Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, um, which the Lord had given to Israel. So they want him to come and read it to them. And and again, if you if you look at the um, schedule of events, or the, if this happened a week after they finished the law, the wall, it was you would see that the people would probably be all excited and, and want to have Ezra read the law to them. Um, the enemies 
knew that this was had been an act of God, and they were all dismayed about it. The people of God should have seen that, yes, this was an act of God and should have been really thankful and really gracious uh, and, and wanted to hear more of God's word. <clears throat> so when they ask, we'll see this phrase, book of the law of Moses, or the book of the law, as probably not all five books of Moses. <laughs> it may have been just Deuteronomy or just Leviticus. Those are the two books that contain the law. Deuteronomy kind of repeats. It's the second giving of the law. And even probably not the complete book. Because that's an awful lot of material to cover. And we'll see that they're reading it here. Um, but one of the things that we do know about Nehemiah, or excuse me, Ezra, who's kind of our main character at this point, why did he go back to Jerusalem in the first place? Let's go back to Ezra, chapter 7. Someone would like to read verse 10 for us. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it, and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Okay, he'd set his heart to really know God's law and what to do to teach it. He wanted to teach it in Israel. And here he is, and they're asking him to read the law. He's probably in seventh heaven. <laughs> this is why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, so I think he's, he's loving this. This is, this is his purpose for, for being there, his purpose for living, the reason why God put him there. Okay, well, it's almost time to quit. And I know from how much the next section is that it's a little bit too long to cover in two minutes. <laughs> so, so we will stop there. Um, Joe, would you like to close in prayer for us? Dear Lord, we thank you for your word, for it's a living word that we can go to and get instructions from on a daily basis. We can look at it and see historical facts, but know that you're the God of yesterday, the God of today, God of tomorrow. The same God, you treat your people the same. We just thank you for that. Thank you for the consistency that you have, for the um, consistency you have in um, leading us, guiding us. Pray we'll be obedient to your callings. Thank you for this hour. Pray for this next hour to come. We want to thank you for the gift of your son that came, died, and rose again for us. We are fresh in your grace. Amen. Amen.